we're going to start, and I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and uh, listen to their answer to this question, all right? Can you remember a book or the book from high school or middle, middle school that was most impactful to you? Remember a book that you were uh, supposed to read during that middle school or high school years and that you felt was most impactful to you or that you remember the most? So turn and, and share that with your neighbor. Let's throw out some of those books. What were, uh, what were some of the books that people were throwing out? Frankenstein, all right? Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Lord of the Flies. Uh, I heard Lord of the Flies, and then what was the other one? Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye, yes. What else? To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Jungle up in St. Clair. Never heard of that book. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I didn't go to high school. <laughs> um, what else? Anything else? Fahrenheit 451. Good. The Crucible. Okay, so, I mean, classics. These are all classic books. Many of us have probably read many of these, if not all of these, as we've gone through high school. Some of you may be more like me and had mastered the art in high school to read the cliff notes or just enough of the book in order to pass the test. That was a little bit of my MO uh, throughout the high school, middle school years. But there was one thing that I read, and it wasn't a book, but it was a short story. It was in my freshman, I believe my freshman year English class, one thing that I read that was incredibly powerful to me was called The Lottery. Has anybody ever read the short story, The Lottery? Okay, so a few of us. It was uh, written in the late 40s, and let me read you uh, the, uh, a quick synopsis of what this short story was about. It says this, The story takes place in a small village where the people are close and tradition is paramount. A yearly event called The Lottery is one in which uh, one person in the town is randomly chosen by a drawing to be violently stoned by friends and family. The drawing has been around over 77 years and is practiced by every member of the town. So it's kind of this dystopian novel, that, or not novel, but story, and it starts out in a very upbeat mood. And it kind of names some key characters, and as people are walking to the lottery, you don't know what the lottery is yet, but everybody's kind of walking to the town square, and they're saying hi, and it's a very jovial, and, and people are very anxious about the lottery. And as a reader, you begin to think, wow, somebody's going to win something great. The lottery, you want to be drawn. The lottery, this is, I wonder, I wonder what the surprise is at the end. And then it takes this really, really dark turn at the very end, and the person that wins the lottery is stoned to death. Now, for whatever reason, this was a powerful story for me. I had a very visceral response when I first read this, and I can remember sitting in my freshman, uh, in, in that classroom, and having this discussion about mob mentality, and about the, the, the frailty of humanity, that there would be this kind of uh, event that would take place. And this was a very powerful powerful story for me. It's maybe the only one that I truly remember the full story from that high school, uh, from those high school years. The section in Acts that we are studying today is very, very similar to this. Similar in content that it's about a stoning, but also similar in the fact that when I read this, I had a visceral response again. You can kind of like feel the angst in this story when you read it. You can kind of feel the trepidation, the pain, the anger that the mob feels in this story. It's a powerful, powerful section of Scripture. So this morning's task is not a small one. It's really to look at about 70 verses out of the Bible. 
chapter 6, 9 through 15, and then all of chapter 7, 1 through 60. So there's a lot of content in here. This morning, my my hope is not to look at a a detailed um, look at this entire section, but is to present maybe a broader view of what's happening, the event, the historical event, a broader view of what's happening, and then drill down to one point at the very end. Before I do that, I want to give just a couple of highlights about this section so we're all kind of on the same uh, same page. Uh, The capture, speech, and stoning of Stephen represents this unique section in the book of Acts, and it's unique for a couple of reasons. One is that it's the longest recorded speech in Acts given by Stephen. Stephen really is the first person that we see as martyred for the gospel. This is where we're first introduced to the biblical character of Saul, who later becomes Paul and proves to be a a significant player in the Christian movement, writes the majority of the New Testament. And uh, this section really serves as this transitionary story where everything beforehand is following along Peter and his ministry to the Jews, and everything after this story really follows Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. So this story kind of sits right in between those two rather different sections of Acts. So this story is a unique story for a number of reasons. And that's the backdrop that I lay this morning. So again, what I'm hoping to do is to to give this broad idea of what's happening, what's taking place, uh, what are the events, the historical events around uh, this section, and then one point at the very end. And next week, we're going to come back to this story. We're going to drill down a little bit deeper and look at the character of Stephen. And we're going to look at how really does this event shape the rest of the Christian movement. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, as we asked in the first service, uh, I would pray again and plead with you that you would allow uh, our hearts and our ears, our eyes to understand your scripture in a deeper way today. Lord, make your word come alive to us. God, may may it not just be uh, something that just a story that we read, but actually um, something that changes our life, God. That that's what your scripture would be for us. It would be transformative. May your word be spoken this morning. Spirit, move in this place. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Move us to where we need to move. Be with us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So again, because of the the length of this section, I'm just going to go ahead and and retell. So you can follow along with me. Uh, Let's jump in. The main character is Stephen. So we learned about Stephen last week. He is uh, one of the followers of this early Christian movement at this point. And he has just been chosen to take over the ministry of distribution. So this is earlier in chapter 6. And throughout history, church history, people oftentimes refer to Stephen as the first church deacon. One of the first deacons. He's charged with this ministry of distribution. And so uh, he and a couple other guys are are kind of put into this new position of leadership. And without a specific reason given, there's no indication of necessarily what the argument is about. An argument arises between Stephen and the Hellenistic Jews that are from several different synagogues at this point. So they kind of find themselves in this argument. And it's not unreal to think that Stephen was probably a Hellenistic Jew and that he may in fact have come from one of these synagogues, but has now been transformed by the gospel, and is now engaging in an argument potentially with people that he knew previous, people that uh, maybe he used to attend church with, 
and now he's kind of on a different path, and now they find themselves in this argument. Because their reason and arguments could not withstand the godly wisdom, as the scripture says, uh, that Stephen spoke with, they planted people to lie about Stephen, saying that he spoke blasphemously about Moses and about God. Now, interesting to note that they put Moses before God in this, and that indicates that these folks, these Hellenistic Jews, may have been uh, more intensely focused on the law than actually their relationship with God. They had more zeal for the law, perhaps, than they did for their relationship with God at this point. And so they accuse him of speaking against the law and of preaching that Jesus will destroy the sacred temple. Their accusations are enough to influence and mobilize this mob of people that come and seize Stephen and bring him before the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious authority of that time. And so this group comes in and they capture him, they take him, they seize him, and they put him in front of the religious authority of their day. And as he is in front of the council, the scripture says that all in attendance, the entire mob that was there, saw that his face was like that of an angel. There is a peace about Stephen. He is a man with God. God's presence is evident in his life. In addressing Stephen and the accusations that are brought against him, the high priest asks if these accusations are, in fact, true. And at this point, Stephen launches into an incredibly long and detailed speech where really he accomplishes two things. The first being this, is that he retells... Jewish history. Now, not the entirety of Jewish history, not all the details, but he retells and gives this beautiful uh, kind of overarching narrative of Jewish history. He begins by talking about Abraham in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 7, and then he goes on to Joseph in verses 9 through 16, and Moses in verses 17 through 44, and then shows how this story continues through Joshua and David and Solomon and Jesus in verses 45 through 50. The guy knew the story. He was brilliant. He knew the history of the Israelites. And so these accusations come about him, and, and, and the high priest says, is this true? And he launches into this really detailed narrative of Jewish history. And the second thing he accomplishes with this long speech, we see in verses 52 and 53, where he rebukes his hearers, the mob that is around him, for the rejection of the Messiah. He rebukes them for rejecting Jesus Christ. Now the brilliance of his speech is in how he connects the history of Israel rejecting God in these stories that he tells to the way that his hearers had just rejected Jesus Christ. He draws this parallel between those two things. And he says, just like the Israelites had rejected God throughout their history, they had missed the point. You missed the point with Jesus. You missed it. To the way the hearers had rejected Christ and neglected the truth of the law. He rebukes them for that. Now, obviously, the people were enraged with his speech. They brought him here under these accusations and he flips the script on him. He turns around and he says, no, you are the ones at fault. You have rejected the Messiah. 
The scripture exclaims that Stephen is full of the Spirit at this point, and he receives a vision of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, but the people are indignant by what they heard. They cry out loudly against him, and they stop their ears, literally like putting their fingers in their ears, and they rush after him. They can't stand to hear what else he has to say. And they capture him, they seize him, they bring him outside of the city. So Levitical law said you couldn't stone someone within the city limits. So they bring him outside of the city and they cast him into a pit. And there they stone him. They kill him. And in this final moment of his life, as he's down in the pit and people are holding stones above their heads... Stephen's words and prayers parallel that of Jesus on the cross. And Luke brings special attention to this. In verse 59 of that chapter 7, Stephen says this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What's that remind us of? Jesus on the cross in Luke 23 saying this, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. And in verse 60 Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again, we hear a very similar thing from Jesus on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke brings special attention to painting some parallels between Stephen and Jesus. The way that they lived their lives, the way that they died at the hands of an angry mob. And the end of the scripture says that Stephen falls asleep, which is a euphemism for he's killed. He dies. Now, I think there are two important themes that emerge in this speech, in these uh, 50-ish verses of this speech. The first one is this. God has historically raised up leaders that Israel had failed to recognize. Throughout history, God raises up leaders and Israel fails to recognize them as God's leaders. Whether literally when uh, Joseph's brothers don't even recognize him after they have left him for death, or more figuratively with Moses and the people questioning his leadership all along the way, or the ways that the Israelites had casted aside all of his prophets, Israel fails to recognize the leaders that God places in front of them. The stubbornness of the Israelites is seen throughout the biblical story, both in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, the culmination with Jesus on the cross. They fail to recognize the people that God is putting around them. He is the great pursuer throughout the entire biblical narrative, and they don't get it. The second thing is this, is that their relationship with him is fractured due to their hard-heartedness. Their relationship with God is fractured because they have hardened hearts. They continually miss the mark. He reminds them that the, reminds them that the patriarchs sold Joseph. He reminds them of the golden calf that they begin to worship. He reminds them that God is not found in the temples and the tabernacles that they have built for him. He uses the word stiff-necked in verse 51, which in the Greek means it's literally unable to turn at the neck. He says, you people are unable to see God around you. Turn around, see the way that God is working. But they are unable to. Stephen is speaking to the crowd who is ready and willing to persecute him, to put him to death for the message that he is bringing. 
And he reminds them of their history, showing them the mistakes of their ancestors, reminding them that they, in fact, are the ones that put Jesus to death, imploring them to change their ways, pleading with them to open their eyes, to turn around, to see God around them, to see what they have done, to see what they are about to do with their stones held high. Stephen's speech is seeking to help others humbly see and admit their transgressions and then to change their actions moving forward. There are many different ways to teach on this speech, to teach on this section of Scripture. You could look at the ways that, Jesus's, or that Stephen's life parallels Jesus' life. It's a cool study to look at the ways that he seized and captured and the things that he utters right before his death and look at the ways that that parallels the life of Jesus. You could look at it that way. You could look simply at the characteristics that Stephen embodies. What does that mean for us? Look at this man, the way that he lived the gospel out, his boldness. What does that mean for us? You could study it simply as a historical event as what has this done for the church? How did this move the church forward? These are all good ways to look at this passage, to study this passage. But apart from these things, and what I found myself asking in this last week is, apart from these things, what else can we learn from this? When we read this story, if we don't just look at the characteristics of Stephen, or if we don't look at this as how did it move the Christian movement forward, this event, then what does this passage teach us? To be real honest, I struggle with this this week. I found myself just kind of waiting for something, waiting for God to tell me, what, what, is, what, what are we supposed to learn from this? And I happened upon a painting that spoke pretty powerfully to me. Can we put that up there? So, I happened upon this painting. This painting was done in 1625 by Rembrandt at age 19. Pretty remarkable. I asked this question in the first service. Do you think he knew he was a good painter before he started, or did he just finish and say, wow, I'm not bad at this? 19 years old, he paints this. What, what strikes you about this painting? You can yell things out. Is there anything that strikes you? It's dramatic, sure. Cut in half, light and dark, good. Everybody's looking down, he's looking up. You can see Saul in the background, he's the gentleman sitting down with the, uh, the coats over his lap. I saw all these things. I mean, it's, a, it's just a, a beautiful rendering of, of the, uh, a, a really dark event, obviously. But there was something else that kind of struck me about the painting, and I had to read a little bit about it. Is that the, the person holding the stone right above him looks odd to me. He looks a little bit out of place. And so I did some reading on this painting, and this is, in fact, the first self-portrait that Rembrandt paints. Rembrandt painted his face on that person holding the stone. Putting himself in this event, putting himself in the story, putting himself as one of the people holding a stone. It's an incredibly humble posture to take when you think about it. Now this was a powerful discovery for me. 
Because when I read Acts, and, and frankly, when I read the scripture, I often put myself in the position of the apostles when I read Acts. Or, or if I read Exodus, I put myself in the position of Moses, of I'm out there in front leading, and it's hard to gather all these people behind me, and it's hard to be a leader. And that's just kind of the perspective that I tend to read from. Or if I read Acts, I think about myself as Peter, or I think about myself as Stephen giving this speech. How would I have given the speech differently? I imagine myself doing the miraculous things like Peter, speaking like Stephen, or doing mission like Paul in the book of Acts. But what if we read from a different perspective? What if we read from the perspective of being one of those people holding a stone? What if we read from the perspective of Rembrandt? The person right above him, holding the stone high above our head. You see, I don't think we often read the scripture that way. I don't think we really read Acts that way. We don't generally think of ourselves as the chief priests trying to squash the work of God. We don't read as ourselves being one of the Jews that's hard-hearted towards God's work in our life. We certainly don't imagine ourselves as one of the angry crowd holding a stone. And in my life, similar to those who were listening to Stephen in this time, I tend to think that I'm right. I'm convinced that I'm justified by my actions. And so when I read Acts, I tend to read as one of the heroes in Acts. But what if our posture needs to change? What could we learn if we postured ourselves differently, admitting that I may not have always been on the right end of the argument. In the first century, if I was there, I may have been one in the crowd. I may not have been Stephen. Or that maybe sometimes I allow my religious zeal to cloud me from the truth of God around me. That maybe in my current life, I need to be more humble and allow the Spirit to convict, to change my ways or my beliefs. So here's my question, my question to you guys. Where are we aiming our stones? If we took a different posture, if we put ourselves in the story as one of the crowd, where are we aiming our stones? Now, I don't imagine any of us would be ready and willing to stone another human being for preaching God, even if we believed what they were preaching was a false gospel. Our laws, our culture, especially our Christian witness would never allow for this. But could there be other things that God has brought before us that has caused us to grab our rocks and hold them high above our heads? Other good, godly things that God has set before us that we raise our rocks right away. Maybe they're subtle things. Maybe things like this. Sacrificing so that we could give more of our resources. But we raise our rock and say, I already give 10%. I'll give more when I get another promotion. Or maybe moving to a third world country for the purpose of mission. But we raise our rock and we say, well, this is a terrible time in the economy to leave my job. I'll do that when I'm a little bit better set up. Or quitting a job because it forces you into positions where you have to compromise your values. But you say, well, I can't leave my job now. How would I support my family? Maybe it's simply moving from just consuming 
religious goods and services on a Sunday morning and actually engaging with the community, actually doing something. But you raise that rock and you say, well, I'm really busy at work and I've got a family and I've got to protect that time. I don't have time to actually engage with the community. Where, where do we raise our rocks, the good things that God puts in front of us? What are the things that we're trying to kill that God's putting in front of us? You see, when we read Acts and automatically assume the perspective of the Peters or the Pauls or the Stevens, one of the heroes of the faith, then I think we may miss an opportunity for learning. So instead, what if we wrestled with the idea that maybe we would be ones hearing the speech from Stephen? Then be willing to ask ourselves, where have we missed God? Where in our lives are we trying to squelch God's movement, the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What makes us reach for our rocks, the good things that God puts in front of us? What are those things? The stoning of Stephen is a critical passage. It's critical for a number of reasons. Critical because it highlights the characteristics of this incredibly faithful Christian servant. Critical because it serves as this transitionary event between Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry. It's critical because it paints this historical picture of the challenges that the early church faced. But I think it's also critical because we can be challenged to read it from both perspectives. The perspective of Stephen and the perspective of the crowd. And be willing to wrestle with that. Now, some may think, well, of course I'm like Stephen, but some may think I might be more like the cowardly crowd holding a stone. When I think back on that story that I read, the lottery, or when I think about Acts 7, every part of me wants to believe that I would never be one of the crowd. I would never be one that grabbed a stone in that instance. And yet, to be true to the call for humility in our lives, I believe we have to be willing to ask ourselves that question and wrestle with that idea. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think about who says that. That's Paul. He was the one with the coats on his lap. He was there, perhaps even holding a stone, overseeing the stoning of Stephen. And yet he calls us in to this incredibly humble call of, look at yourselves with sober judgment. Be humble. Paul's imploring us to humbly examine our past and to question our actions, knowing that God is still Savior, God is still King, God is still Lord. God is graceful and merciful. But look at your actions. Be willing to question the things that you do. That was Stephen's message to the Jews that surrounded him. And I believe that's the message that we have to wrestle with this morning. Let's pray.